kids, kindergarten through fifth grade. You guys can make your way to the back. Your teachers are back there and will happily take you to your classrooms this morning. Would you take your Bible with me and turn to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at a handful of verses this morning. Genesis chapter 2, we'll look at verses 4 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry is standing in back and would happily bring you one. If you need a copy, put your hand in the air and he'll, he'll bring, it, bring it to you this morning. Very good. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. That's where I'll start reading this morning. And, uh, and we'll read through the end of, of the chapter. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the beasts or to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no fa- not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
When we get to this section of text, we're actually starting a new section this morning. In the last three weeks, we're exploring Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And that's designed to cause us to wonder at the act of creation. That was the primary thrust of what we see happening in the first chapter and then the first three verses of chapter 2 in Genesis. But when we get to Genesis 2, verse 4... The following shows us a relationship between God and his image bearers. And so our text this morning takes a magnifying glass, and you'll remember that on the sixth day of creation, that was when God created man in his image. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 26, you see God saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is a magnifying glass on that creative act. And it gives us a clear portrait of what things look like in Eden. That's the purpose of Genesis 2, 4 through 25. I'm sure that we've all thought about what a perfect day would look like. I'm not sure what it would be for you. I know what that is for me, what a perfect day would look like. Probably right now, for most of you, a perfect day looks like a sun-filled beach or something similar. Not icy rain. But when we get to our text, we see a snapshot of God's intent for man in creation, which was, in fact, perfect. And so this here represents the perfect day. Whatever our ideas of a perfect day look like, this shows us objectively what a perfect day is. This is undisrupted communion with God that we find here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 25. And a lot of the ideas, I wish that we had more time. Maybe we should, but, but I, I wish that we had more time here because so many of the ideas that are contained here in chapters, in chapter 2 through the end, in chapter 2, verse 4 through the end of the chapter, so many of the ideas here come so increasingly important throughout all of Scripture. We see so many of the ideas here that build upon one another throughout the pages of Scripture. What here we see this perfect day described in Genesis 2, all disrupted, what we'll begin our time with next week in Genesis 3. This all becomes disrupted. It comes crashing down. But because we're not there yet, we're going to focus on these ideas and hopefully carry some of these ideas with their through lines all the way to the end. So here's what I want you to see here as we look at these verses this morning. Genesis 2, 4 through 25 shows us God's perfect design for mankind in creation and then points us forward to the recovery of that design in new creation. Genesis 2, 4 through 25 shows us God's perfect design for mankind in creation and points us forward to the recovery of that design in new creation. So the first two chapters, then we have the creation of of everyone and everything, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, and then after that, God's intent and design for mankind. Now again, disruption is coming in Genesis 3, and so there needs to be a recovery effort, and we'll get to that, but there needs to be a recovery effort of this perfect day that we see in Genesis chapter 2. 
life in the garden is in fact perfect. It's perfect because it followed perfectly God's plan and design. And so that's going to lead us to explore a handful of points this morning uh, that we see in this text. And again, I wish that we could get to everything. We're not going to get to everything this morning. But three things that I want you to note in this text is man's unbroken relationship with three, with three separate things. The first thing is man's unbroken relationship with God. The second thing is man's unbroken relationship with the environment. And then third, man's unbroken relationship with the, within the family. Make that plural, man's unbroken relationships within the family. So we're going to explore each of those ideas as we see it here in this text. And then we're going to see how these things relate to one another as well as we draw a conclusion and head to the Lord's table this morning. So first thing that we need to explore here is man's unbroken relationship with God. And as we enter into the text, we see this phrase, then that's going to come up over and over and over again throughout the book of Genesis. We're only exploring the first 11 chapters in 2020 here in Genesis, but you're going to see these, this language come up time and time again. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This language marks here for us the, the, the people God is relating to in these texts. And so Adam and Eve, as we learn their names, are, are formed out of the earth, and so the earth is their lineage. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. But there were no people before them, and so when we get here, we see that they are formed up out of, of the ground. But if we go forward, if you just flip a few pages in your Bible to Genesis chapter 5, you'll see this phrase again. But instead of these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, we see in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Similar language here. Which then we launch into this awesome genealogy um, where we learn about Adam's descendants and who is going to become important for us as we trace his lineage throughout the book of Genesis. We'll get there in a month or two. But, so as we look here, the stage is set here by what is written. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And so, and then we have this setup. What's going on on the earth when, when we get to this passage? The stage is being set in verses 5 and 6. We learn what man would have seen once he was formed. No bush of the field, no small plant of the field. And Moses even gives us this understanding of what, of what things look like or why they were the way that they were because there was no rain yet, because there was no man to keep it or to cultivate the ground. And there was a mist going up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. So the stage is set here. And then verse 7 describes God's creation of man. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living creature. Now, this immediately, at first glance, might appear to be a throwaway verse that just gives us the details, but there's some really important ideas contained here that need to be, uh, need to be understood. God forms man out of the dust. That's the first detail. And the second is that he breathes life into him. Both of those elements are important. The first, man is formed out of the dust from the ground, and we don't know exactly what substance that is, but we do know what it's called. In the original language, the word for ground here is Adama, and the word for man is Adam. And so there's actually a play on words here, and we'll come back to this when we consider man's relationship to the earth or to the environment. But God forms man out of the dust of the ground. And since he is formed in this way, man is uniquely, uniquely suited for working the ground, what God would, what God would charge him with. So we'll come back to that in a moment, put a mental marker there. But then the second thing that we see here in verse 7 is that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. Now what this is in intended to communicate to us is that, that man has a unique relationship to God. It's a very personal act to breathe life into something or someone. God, is, God and the man are face to face. And it is a self-giving act by God, a unique self-giving act that God does not perform on any, any other creature. Something of God now resides within this dust from the ground, his breath. And where there is no breath, there is no life, and so the statement is made at the end of verse 7, the man became a living creature. You man shares the breath of God, a uniquely personal attribute. And so we're meant to see a bit of a tension here. This is a little bit of a tension that the rest of Scripture is going to pick up on over and over and over again. We, as people, are formed out of the ground, out of the dust of the ground, but... We have this unique relationship with God because his breath is that which inhabits our lungs. And this is how King David can write in Psalm 103.14, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And at the same time, Job can say in Job 27.3, The Spirit of God is in my nostrils. That word spirit, also the word for breath. The breath of God is in my nostrils, Job says. And so in this tension here between dust and between a unique relationship with God, that's where we reside. Man must remember that he was formed out of the dust of the ground. He is a created being and therefore he's accountable exclusively and entirely to God. All that he has is given to him by God. He is given breath. He is given then later in the chapter the garden to work and to keep. And he's given a helper suitable for him. All of these things come and are given to him. These are to be viewed as gifts, beginning with the breath of life. 
And man has special relationship with God. This is the other side of that tension. It begins with God's breath in his nostrils and continues to receiving God's requirements, as we'll see in verse 16 and 17. Requirements like to not eat of everything in the like to eat of everything in the garden, but not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when this tension is held, man's relationship with God is unbroken. When the tension between the understanding that man is formed out of the dust and has a unique relationship with God, when that tension is held, man's relationship with God remains unbroken. Again, when we get to chapter 3 next week, we're going to see that relationship with God broken because this tension is broken. When man does not remember that he was formed from the dust of the ground and when he fails to remember the unique relationship that God has with him, his creator, this tension and the relationship is ultimately disrupted. This is vital for us to understand. Right relationship with God is grounded in right understanding of God's divine character. Demonstrated Genesis 1 through his act of creation. It is also grounded in the understanding of who we are. Who we are. Dust, but made for a unique relationship with God. Genesis 3, all goes haywire, but we will see that man's understanding of who he is is disrupted. The serpent's deception of Eve is that once she and Adam eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will be like God. Do you see how that disrupts that tension? Does man recall that he is dust, like David says in Psalm 103, that God remembers our frame or knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do we also recognize that in that moment that Adam and Eve were deceived and took the fruit and ate it, they did not remember that they were in fact dust. But man is formed out of the dust and man owes his life to God's self-giving act of breathing life into his nostrils. This reality is forgotten and we'll get there next week. I don't want to belabor that. But here's what we need to take away from this understanding. Man's unbroken relationship with God as we see it in Genesis chapter 2 verses 4 through 25. Man's unbroken relationship with God is shown here through the tension seen in man's likeness to the ground and man's likeness to God. Both of these things are absolutely 100% true. Ecclesiastes, you remember back in Ecclesiastes 3 when we were there last year, Ecclesiastes 3, the second half of verse 20, Solomon says, all are from the dust and to dust all return. But as we saw back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So friends, we must hold this tension, these realities, we must hold them in tension. We see God for who he is and we see us who we, who we really are. These realities are disrupted. That's when we fall into sin. We no longer see God as the creator, the one who gives the breath of life. And we no longer see ourselves as having something in common with the ground. 
We do not marvel that God who created and sustains, we arrogantly elevate ourselves to a a position or a place of forgetfulness regarding our own origins. And then we pursue self and self-interest. We make our perceived good the highest good. And we trample over people and dishonor God. The understanding that we are of the dust and that we share a unique relationship that is owed to God and His breath, that points us, and this passage gives us one reason, then why Jesus took on flesh. A reality that we'll celebrate when we get to the Lord's table. Uncorrupted by sin, Jesus came in flesh. And Paul says in Romans 8.3 that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful, just that he had a body like a man. Man who was formed out of the dust. Jesus then proceeded to hold this tension throughout his life. He emptied himself, he took on the form of a created being, made from the dust of the ground, fully, fully man, but also recognizing that it was God's breath in his lungs. Not because God breathed into his nostrils like he did with Adam. Get this, not because God breathed into Jesus' nostrils like Adam, but because he was true God of true God. He was fully God. Jesus, therefore, enjoyed unbroken relationship with his heavenly Father, with only one disruption. When, Jesus laid this, or when God laid the sin of the whole world on Jesus as he hung on the cross, one disruption when Jesus took on the iniquity of us all. But through his resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that relationship ultimately is mended. And so the unbroken relationship that we see that Adam has with God in Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is for us. It's ours in Christ. We are offered the same unbroken relationship that we see pictured here where our sin is dealt with and where the Spirit of Christ is breathed out on us just as God breathed life into Adam. And we are now able to take on more of the likeness of God, freed from sin, made to walk as those formed out of the dust of the ground for God's unique purposes. But secondly here in this text, we see man's unbroken relationship with the environment. Now this may seem like a strange thing to point out, and the environment is a politically charged term. When I say environment, I just seen simply his surroundings. It's an essential part of this text. That man, in fact, shares something with the ground. We covered that. Being formed out of the dust of the ground, man is uniquely suited for care for the ground. In verse 5, we see that no agriculture has taken place, right? Moses says, and there was no man to work the ground. And so it wasn't quite what it needed to be. Man plays an integral role in what God created. 
Not in the creation act, but in creation itself. What God calls man to do is to work the garden in the Eden and to keep it. And we see that in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The garden is divinely planted for the man specifically. Look at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight for food. And back in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, the garden, a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So this garden is given to man. It is planted there specifically for man to work and to keep. And there's abundance here. There's abundance here. Eden literally means something like place of abundant waters. So if you're going to Eden, you would find that it is a place lacking in nothing. It's lacking in literally nothing. It's a real paradise, a paradise that God charged man to work and to keep. And so we see here then that the tree of the of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stand at the middle of this garden. And we ask ourselves, well, why is the placement important at the end of verse 9? The tree of, the, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also there in the midst of the garden. Why, does, why is it recorded here that they stood in the middle? The mention and placement of these is important because the tree of life represented the source of all life in the garden which is God himself. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is at the center of the garden to remind man of his creatureliness. Now this would be the stand-in for wisdom or an understanding of what's going on in the world around them. A recognition that man is in fact created because we get this command, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in that day you shall you eat of it, you shall surely die. So it's to remind man of his creatureliness, an idea that we've explored in, when we looked at chapter 1. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer helpfully makes this distinction for us in his book, Creation in the Fall. He says that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands in the middle of the garden and points out man's limits. Man's creatureliness, Bonhoeffer says, is in the middle of his existence, not at the edge. It's in the middle of his existence, not at the edge. What that means is that at the heart of who we are is a creature. It's not something to be grappled with once in a while when we feel like it. It's something to define our very being. Similarly, then, we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil standing at the center and constant reminder, even though it was a man's task to work and to keep the garden, that it is God who ultimately ensures that life is sustained. I said that incorrectly. The tree of life stands at the center to show that man is sustained by the one who gives life, God. So this ties into our understanding of right relationship with God. He is God, we are dust. It is his breath that fills our lungs. We must hold these both in view. Adam had the two trees as reminders in the middle of the garden. 
And so we see then man's unbroken relationship with the environment is being reminded, consistently reminded of God's life-giving power and man's creatureliness. Man was not made for the garden. The garden was, in fact, made for man. Acting in according to God's directive to work it and to keep it, and being reminded by creation, specifically by the two trees, that man, Adam, in this instance, is a steward and a limited one at that. Now, this has some implications for us. The implications here under our heading, man's unbroken relationship with the environment, the implications are this. I'm going to give you three. There's probably a ton more, but we're just going to go with three this morning. First, we have an intimate relationship with creation. We're formed out of the ground, and we're called like Adam to work the ground and to keep it. Now, not all of us own land. Not every one of us in this room is a farmer. And so working and keeping the ground may look like something quite different for you. Maybe it's working and keeping spreadsheets. But we must steward whatever we have been given by God in the same way that Adam is tasked with stewarding the garden. That's the implication for us. The second implication that we see here in this text is our relationship with creation should not be dictated by fear. Now, this is a culturally aware statement. Man's relationship to creation is one that finds its purposes in God's character and commands, not in fear-based argumentation. Christians are not asked in the Bible to resolve political conversations about the environment because the lines have been drawn in unbiblical places. Genesis 2, 4 through 25 redraws these lines for us. This tells us how we should relate to the world around us and how we should engage in conversations such as something like climate change. Creation is for man, and man is meant to care for creation in such a way that honors the Creator. That's our position. Creation is for man, and man is meant to care for creation in such a way that honors the Creator. One of my favorite authors and poets, philosophers, he's a farmer also. He's a man by the name of Wendell Berry. Berry says, Do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. The way that we care for creation is to ask, how does this affect my neighbor? How can I love my neighbor through this? If our activity in the environment harms others, then we should stop that activity. If our activity in the environment shows love for neighbor and a reverence and a love for God, we should continue. I won't belabor this, but I'm saddened by conversations, especially in Christian circles, that claim man can do and should do whatever he wants with the world around him. That's not what Genesis chapter 2 says. I'm also saddened by conversations that claim that, claim that man should cease all working and keeping of creation because of fear driven by scientific data. In our overly complex world, simply loving God and your neighbor with how you relate to the environment is what God calls us to. The third implication that we see here under this heading is that, and then we'll move on, 
is that our relationship to creation, and we talked about this just a moment ago, so I won't belabor it, but our relationship to creation is meant to show us again, it's meant to show us our creatureliness. Just like two trees in the middle of the garden, we are to observe creation around us, and we must see that we aren't at the center of it. We must see that we are not at the center of the universe. Rather, God is. I love how John Piper says it in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says, The really wondrous moments of joy in this world are not moments of self-satisfaction, but of self-forgetfulness. Standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside of ourselves. In each of these rare and precious moments in life, beside the canyon, before the Alps, under the stars, is an echo of a far greater excellence, namely the glory of God. This is what we see here in Genesis chapter 2. The world around us, we have an intimate relationship because we were formed up out of the, out of the ground and we are uniquely called to care for and to love our neighbor through our care for what's given to us on this earth. The final point we'll consider this morning is man's unbroken relationships within the family. So we've got man's unbroken relationship with God, man's unbroken relationship with the environment, and finally, man's unbroken relationships within the family. Verses 18 through 25 uniquely show this to us, where God makes this statement in verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone, and that should be taken as the thesis statement for 18 through 25. This section of text is really kind of stands alone because it describes the origins of the family for us. It is not good that man should be alone. Now that's a general statement. We often tie that together with marriage, but God is giving us a understanding that man is not created to live in isolation. Man is created to live together with others in community. Now he's going to pare that down and get us to the husband and wife relationship. But this is the first declaration in, in scripture of something that is not good. God created everything and he declared it all to be good at the end of chapter 1, in verse 31 of chapter 1. And then when we get to the creation of man in more detail, we see God saying it is not good. There is something here that is not good and needs to be rectified. And so God goes about rectifying it. This, the rectification of this is ultimately what will result in the creation of the woman. But one starts out in general. Again, we're designed for relationship. The second part of the sentence is what we want to focus on for a minute, though. God says, after, it is not good that a man should be alone. And you'll see, if you're reading the ESV like I am, that there is a semicolon there. And then I will make a helper fit for him. Getting more specific about what God is doing here in verse 18. I will make a helper fit for him is what God says. 
And again, this is the origin of the family. God makes every living thing, but after naming everything, we find out in verses 19 and 20, there still is nothing here that is fit to help Adam in his task. Nothing is suitable. No one is suitable for Adam in this place. So God puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib out of Adam's side and then he forms the woman. Now this is important because, because just as man was made in a special act of creation up out of the dust and the life, the breath of life is breathed into his nostrils, just as that is the reality, so is the woman uniquely made in a way that no one else or nothing else is. She is made out of man, signifying that she, she is of the same substance and therefore is also an image bearer as man is. And if we go back to chapter 1, verse 27, we see, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both man and woman, therefore, are image bearers of God. And this shows us, so far in creation, we have not seen unity that is unprecedented in this way. This is an unprecedented unity between man and woman. And now this text, specifically 18 through the end of the chapter, points out some very real important ideas for us here. Uh, the first is, I just, I just said it a moment ago, man and woman are both image bearers. But we see here also the same breath that God breathed into the lungs of Adam is also the breath that fills the woman's lungs. God choosing to form woman out of man indicates that God's intent for her is the same as his intent for Adam, to be his representative and to reflect him in creation. It would be a misuse of this text. Hear me say this clearly. It would be a misuse of this text and unsupported to claim that creation order, something that's appealed to in the New Testament many times, but that creation order, man first and then woman, woman from man, it would be a misuse of the text to suggest any difference in degree of value in the being of man and woman. Both are image bearers and therefore highly valued by God. The second thing, implication that we see here is that man and woman have unique roles. For the role of woman is the helper. And that's the one that is outlined here for us. And man is charged with working and keeping the garden and woman is charged with being the man's helper. We see that man and woman are charged with distinct tasks, equal in value in God's eyes, but, married, but made to carry out different roles. And this idea gets fleshed out through the rest of Scripture. And this is not an unfamiliar thing. If you've been with Buffalo City Church for a while, we've seen this when we are in 1 Corinthians in particular. On several occasions, Paul uses this line of argumentation. But it must be stressed that the distinct roles outlined here for men and women does not ever justify domineering or abusive behavior. And some societies or individuals have used scripture to engage in this behavior, which we, friends, as the local church, must actively oppose. 
It is the prerogative of the church to maintain the tension equal in value, distinct in role. And our secular society says this tension is unachievable. We as Christians are comfortable in it because it's outlined here for us. The final thing that I will say this morning about this text is that man and woman represent God's design for sex and sexuality. Here in chapter 2, just like in chapter 1 when we talked about last or two weeks ago, excuse me, we're introduced to two genders and these genders correspond with biological sex. Man and woman are intended for one another as companions both socially and sexually. And this is how the command to be fruitful and multiplied is carried out. Now, the confusion in our culture over this topic is another pretty political one, but we need to draw our lines biblically. When we encounter men and women who have bought into society's understanding of sex and gender, we must lovingly confront them with the realities of sin and the confusion that comes as the result. And we'll discuss that more when we get to Genesis chapter 3. But God's good intent for creation in the perfect day that we see here described in Genesis chapter 2 is disrupted in Genesis chapter 3. That includes an understanding of the command given in 15 and 16 to work the garden and to keep it. And that includes a right understanding of the roles that God has assigned to both man and woman. These are societally challenged. And that also includes an understanding of biological sex and gender. God's intent in creation is clearly seen In many cases, the argument is one about how the individual feels or identifies in our society. But those feelings about gender run contrary to the perfect picture of God's intent for creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Anything short of what is pointed to here is not love, despite what anyone else says. We immediately see that the events of the fall in Genesis 3... A brother murders his brother in Genesis 4. You know the story of Cain and Abel. This is a clear understanding of the disruption of what it means for the family, family relationships to remain intact. This is not God's intent for the family unit. And we see that sin is what brings this about. And we must see that everything, sex and gender included, are corrupted by sin. And so we then as a church have a role to play in this. We have a role to play in this. We need boldness and we need courage in the face of ever-increasing confusion about what it means to be man and woman in our society. We have the solution, and it's here in Genesis chapter 2. We have an understanding of what God intends in the design of mankind. And we must lovingly extend that solution for the corruption of God's perfect intent through sin. So, friends, if you know someone who is struggling in this arena, be quick to speak the truth in love and invite others to see Jesus as the one who can free us from the confusion that sin can bring about. It may be a man or a woman struggling with confusion over sex and gender. It may be a man struggling with pornography. It may be a woman struggling with body image or eating disorders. But it is the responsibility of the church not to exclude these people, but to introduce them 
to a God who has made a way for them to be made whole in Jesus Christ. So we see God's intent in creating man and woman and the unbroken relationship that they share here, which will then move itself into an expression of the family unit as they carry out the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So we're going to draw our time to a close this morning. As we move towards the Lord's table, which is our destination here, let's go back to where we started in this text and the statement that I made right away. Genesis 2, 4 through 25 shows us God's perfect design for mankind in creation and points us forward to the recovery of that design in new creation. This is what we really need to take away. We see all of these things in this text, the way that God designed us to have relationship with him and to make him the center of our lives. God designed us to properly care for our corner of creation, whether that be a piece of the earth or a spreadsheet. We properly care for the corner of our corner of creation by working it and keeping it. And God designed us to be those who establish families that carry these things out as well. This is God's intent. And it's all going to get disrupted again in Genesis 3. But we would be remiss to miss the forward look here. All of this in Genesis chapter 2 is recovered through the person and work in Jesus Christ. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Please hear this. Jesus came to earth and provided the perfect picture of what man is meant to be. Even in a world that was saturated in sin, Jesus arrived on the scene and showed us exactly what the perfect day looked like despite the conditions of sin and sinfulness. What Adam would fail to display, Jesus would display perfectly. We sang it in that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, just a few moments ago. The true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is fully Adam. Or he is fully man. He is fully Adam. And then, Jesus would pay the penalty for our active rebellion against God's design that we see here in Genesis chapter 2. And then he would ultimately bring us back to God. Friends, that is the point of this text. The perfect picture in Genesis 2 that we see is being actively recovered through the person and work in Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to new creation where God will bring us back to this perfection that we see on display in the garden. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 records an event called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. This is going to carry us into the Lord's table this morning. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look ahead to that particular feast. Let me read it, this passage. Revelation 19, 6-9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate that we have in fact received the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb through Jesus Christ. The perfect portrait of what it means to be created in the image of God, to be man and woman, to live in in harmony with the world around us is seen and initiated in the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we will spend eternity in the presence of our Creator praising God and loving Him. When Jesus on his, on, at the Last Supper uh, instituted this, what we'll celebrate this morning. When he sat down, he said, do this in remembrance of me. When we come to the table, when we pick up the juice, when we take, the, when we take up the bread, we, say, do, Jesus, we hear Jesus' words, do this in remembrance of me. This is about remembering Jesus' life and sacrificial death on our behalf. The gospel, the good news that makes it possible for us to experience the perfect day like we see pictured in Genesis chapter 2. So I'm going to invite you to come to the table in just a moment. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in song. But when you're ready in your hearts, come forward, grab the elements, the juice and the bread, and you can make your way back to your seat and sit down and take the elements there. This is uh, something that we do together as a church, as followers of Jesus. This is for followers of Jesus. If you're not sure where you stand before God this morning, I would ask that you take a step back and just reflect on what you've heard here in the time that we've spent together. Don't approach the table. Just wait patiently. And if you need to talk about anything that you heard, I'm I'm available after the service to, to process through anything that we've discussed this morning. But if again, if you do not know where you stand before our holy God, do not approach the table this morning. Just hang back. No one's looking at you. No one's judging you. The other thing that I would say is there are kids in here with us this morning. If your kid has made a credible profession of faith, parents, by all means, invite them to participate together with you at the table. However, however, if, if that has not yet occurred, use this as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ with them this morning. Let me pray. And, uh, and when you're prepared in your hearts, come forward and grab the elements.